to the Damascus Road podcast. On the road to Damascus, Paul had a radical encounter with Jesus and his life was changed forever. That is what we hope and pray for here. Now, on to this week's episode. So I like to think that I'm a decent cook, uh, at least when it comes to food I've practiced making. Soups and pasta sauces are my specialty these days. If you like soup, come to my house. Um, I can now consistently make delicious meals, but I wasn't always this way. I remember when I was first learning how to cook pasta sauces, I had this dream of making a creamy lemon sauce over noodles. And then I was given the opportunity to make it. I was watching our pastor's children, and they were really hungry, so I thought, I see that there are lemons on the counter. I see that there's cream in the fridge. Let's make that sauce. But I did not know how to make said sauce. The children were excited at first, but then watched in horror as I added the lemon juice to the cream in the pan, and it immediately curdled. Weird colored lumps appeared out of nowhere and kept multiplying the more I stirred it. I had never seen something curdle before. I didn't really know what was going on, so I assumed it must be the heat causing this strange reaction. I promised the kids that dinner would be ready soon if I just tried again. So to a cold pan, again, I added lemon juice to cream, and again, it curdled. I just tried to mix it up, keep adding more butter, more cream, but it was no good. Chunky, gooey curdles continued to form because that's what acid does to dairy. My heart sank as the hungry children whimpered, why don't you know what you're doing? (laughs) Their parents are really good cooks, um, so I'm sure this is the worst culinary disaster they've ever seen. I still don't even know if this kind of sauce is possible or if it will always turn into sad cheese. (laughs) Just to give them something to eat, I put the lemon juice directly on the noodles with salt. Um, So it kind of tasted like a lemon starburst (laughs) on noodles. So the kids were mad, and they were mad that they had to wait for dinner, and it wasn't even good. Roland was crying, and (laughs) and Aiden just stared into his bowl so sadly. I finally conceded, and we had PB&Js instead. Needless to say, cooking without a recipe did not go well for me. Uh, Just like a beginner can't cook well without a recipe, the same is true for a Christian with no spiritual practices. The same way that inexperienced cooks want to cook something amazing and can't yet, Believers of Jesus sincerely want to live in freedom. We want to have the fruits of the Spirit and put our sinful desires to death. We want to be good people, living the good life. But we will fail to have the life of Jesus if we do not practice the ways of Jesus. His practices are the recipe. The last few weeks, we have been diving deep into the importance of fighting the flesh and living in the Spirit. We have been bringing our disordered desires into the light and examining the false philosophies we have around fulfilling those desires. And we have seen how our thoughts and actions can either feed the sinful nature or feed the Holy Spirit living within us. What we give our attention to will eventually form our character and determine the people we will become. So today we will end the series by looking at the ways of Jesus, the practices he himself did, and the ones that he gave to us as extremely valuable tools in the fight against flesh. Uh, Practicing the way of Jesus and not just professing belief in Jesus is the only way we will have the kind of life he promised. Jesus said, Come to me, all of you who are uh, weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. 
A yoke is a wooden frame placed on beasts of burden, like oxen. It distributes the weight of the load across their shoulders so they can carry heavy equipment without overexerting themselves. Jesus' yoke is his way of seeing the world and his way of living that he teaches us. It takes our difficult lives and gives them direction and purpose and the strength to carry the expectations placed upon us. Jesus' yoke is a gift to help us, not an additional weight. Jesus' version of freedom does not take commitment and responsibilities away from us. It encourages it, but it puts them in the right context with the help of the Holy Spirit so we don't have to carry the burden alone. But the very sad truth is that many people who profess belief in Jesus will never take this yoke upon themselves. They won't conquer their sin. They will continue to be burdened. They will likely never experience the peace, joy, and love they so deeply long for. Their desires will continue to rule their life. They may be able to put on a brave face for many years, even decades, until the ugly truth erupts and breaks the illusion. We all know people who seem to follow Jesus so well until they didn't. Until the beast of unchecked desire ripped apart the life they could have had. I'm sure you've heard about a minister caught up in an affair, or you find out your roommate is addicted. You find out your sister is in debt from gambling. You find out your best friend has been lying to you. You hear your boyfriend yelling terrible insults at strangers online playing video games. And you, well, I guess only you know what you're hiding, right? But this is not the fate Jesus wants for us. He does not want sin to so easily pull us away from the good life. He doesn't want us to be enslaved to our every desire. He wants us to have a firm foundation built upon solid rock. This is exactly what Jesus tells us at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. Anyone who listens to my teaching and follows it is wise, like a person who builds a house on solid rock. The foundation is not just knowing Jesus' teachings, but obeying them, following his words and his life into freedom. Unfortunately, as Ryan talked about, our culture celebrates freedom. It celebrates freedom from all restraint instead of freedom for choosing the good. Our little decisions have led to habits, which have led to compulsions, which become full addictions. And we are slaves to what has mastered us. But Jesus invites us into a new way of life that starts with a small decision to follow him and blossoms in new practices and habits that form our character. He wants us to have freedom in the spirit that we may be righteous people. He wants us to be resilient, trustworthy, and faithful people who are free to do good things. But if we want freedom, we have to put our sinful natures to death. We can't just keep sin in check. We have to kill it. Um, the Bible talks about this concept with the phrase, crucifying our flesh. Uh, throughout the series, we've been looking at Galatians 5 through 6, which is all about this, and I recommend you should read this on your own time. Um, but Galatians 5 gives us this visceral picture of the way of Jesus. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. When we crucify our flesh, we kill our sinful nature so that we can have a new life in the spirit. God takes out our stony, stubborn heart and replaces it with a fleshy, responsive heart. We are most familiar with this concept as the tradition of baptism. When someone is baptized, they profess their faith in Jesus and give their life to him. They go completely under the water, which represents the grave. Their old self is put to death, and they are resurrected. Like when Jesus went into the grave for three days and was risen, in baptism we follow him into the resurrected life. 
Uh, Romans 6 says, since we have been united with him in his death, we will also be raised to life as he was. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin, for when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. And since we died with Christ, we know we will also live with him. So you also should consider yourselves to be dead uh, to the power of sin and alive to God through Christ Jesus. Death no longer has power over us, and neither does the sin that leads to death. We are not obligated to do what our sinful nature urges us to do. We are alive in Christ, living, breathing, free, and eternal beings. But this act of crucifying our flesh um, when we're baptized is not an isolated experience. We must continue to put our sin to death every single day. Jesus said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Until we are resurrected again, the reality is that we live in a sinful world and we will be tempted to sin again. The devil does not want us to be free, so he attacks us with deceptive ideas that play into disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society. He tries to pull us back into sin constantly by telling us to give in to our sinful desires, that these desires will make us happy. But the sooner we realize that we can crucify our sinful desires, that we are not powerless against his attacks, and that we have an undefeatable advocate in the Holy Spirit, the sooner we will find true freedom. For the Lord is the Spirit, and wherever the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Uh, The good life is lived with the faithful obedience to continually come back to God and be in his presence. Even the word repent simply means to come back to God. This is why the way of Jesus is a life filled with spiritual practices. Uh, Spiritual practice is anything that helps us to connect with the Holy Spirit. You probably noticed that we do a lot of these at our church. We practice Sabbath, silence, worship, prayer, and the list goes on and on. Uh, This is because we don't just want our community to learn about God. We want our community to be with God. Um, It is God's spirit working through us and not our own willpower that will produce a beautiful result. We follow Jesus effectively only through the spirit's power because willpower will never be enough. This is proven around us all the time. People's wills are fickle, and they constantly do things they don't want to do. All people have a law that they hold the world to, an expectation of what is right and wrong and how people should behave. Even people who say that truth is relative are beholden to that truth. Um, But simultaneously, each person will fail to meet their own standards. Whether it is a set of your own personal expectations, societal or political expectations, religious ones, or let alone God's perfect standard, each person will eventually fail on their own. The problem isn't that expectations are evil. Many people like to think if there just weren't any expectations or rules, then no one would fail, but we cannot outrun the fall. The consequences of going against the grain of God's universe will always catch up to us. Selfishness, greed, pride, lust, envy, wrath, You don't have to be a Christian to see how these sins corrupt a society and make the world a terrible place. Anyone can see that to be human is to have free will, and to be human after the fall means that our free will is cursed to lead us into destruction. That is why we cannot will our way into a better world. The way to freedom is not to use our will to do whatever we want or whatever is right in our own understanding. Freedom becomes available when we surrender our wills to Jesus. So we need to use our willpower to do what it can, 
to surrender to Jesus and connect to the Spirit through his practices. When we feed the Spirit, it will grow stronger in us. It can rewire our minds and reroute our desires so that following the Spirit will eventually come naturally. We may not be able to control our desires right now, but we reap the benefits of sowing in the Spirit over time, like Megan talked about last week in teaching through Galatians 6. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature, but those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. So let's take a look at three of the practices of Jesus that will lead us into freedom. Many spiritual practices will help us to crucify the flesh, but none as much as the practice of fasting. Fasting is the choice to not eat in order to devote oneself to prayer. It is a very physical way of surrendering to God and learning how to deny our desires. The world says you'll be happy when you get what your flesh wants, whereas fasting is the practice of denying yourself what you want and finding strength in the spirit without it. The human desire for food is one of the strongest we have, so if we can deny our hunger, we will learn to have self-control over our lesser desires as well. Andrew Murray said fasting helps express, deepen, confirm the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice anything, even ourselves, to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God. It teaches us to give up our immediate comfort and trust that the Lord will satisfy us. It forces us to turn up the heat so we can burn out the virus that is our sinful nature. It's important that we practice fasting specifically from food. Abstaining from other things like social media is still important, but it's not the same as food. When you abstain from things like entertainment, you can still fill the void with other activities, but there's no replacement for food. When you are hungry and you can't eat, you must look to God, and that's what makes it so powerful. Uh, Modern Protestant culture isn't really big on fasting. Uh, There's an unspoken consensus that we're past it. Uh, We've moved on. I don't need to do that anymore. Um, And if we do do it, it's a very personal experience, right? It's completely optional. Um, But Jesus fasted regularly, and if Jesus felt he needed to fast, then we do too. Not as something we have to do, but something that can give us immense spiritual strength. Fasting is spoken of in the Bible as something that gives people hope and clarity in times of trouble. When people were afraid, when they were trying to make a hard decision, when they needed a miracle, or when they were just trying to repent of their sins, they fasted. It continued to be a staple of Christian living for over a millennia and still is in many denominations around the world. So it's not a nuisance to move past, but rather a discarded treasure waiting to be rediscovered. Because in learning to crucify the flesh, it is important to do spiritual practices that will impact our bodies. Um, Although the flesh means our sinful nature, it cannot be understated that our sinful natures do impact our physical bodies. The body is the battleground for many of our wars with the flesh. So we need a physical practice to train our bodies to come back to God. Pastor John Mark Comer says that fasting is a way to turn your body into an ally in your fight with the flesh rather than an adversary. So we want to start a culture of fasting in our church, and we want to do it as a community. For the next few weeks, um, we are encouraging everyone to fast at least one meal together a week. This is to prepare for the season of Lent, starting on February 22nd, and during Lent, we will be, we will be fasting for two days a week. I know, it's intimidating, um, but don't worry. People have fasted for Lent for a really long time, and they've been fine. 
So Tyler will talk us through the details of Lent the Sunday before it starts, but for now we will focus on just one meal a week. Uh, because spiritual practices are easier to practice together. Um, so the day that we've decided on is Wednesdays, and you can pick another day if you need to make it work for your schedule, but just know that it is much easier to do this with the community rather than doing it alone. Um, and to clarify, you don't have to do this fast, but we are highly encouraging it. We feel very strongly that fasting is a part of the way of Jesus. So pick one meal for the day that you would like to skip every Wednesday. For me, I will skip lunch, meaning from 9 to 6. 9 a.m. to 6 p.m., I won't drink, eat or drink anything except for water. Um, and again, fasting means specifically not eating food and using that time to pray instead. I understand that health reasons or eating disorders can be affected by fasting, so if this is a concern for you, um, I recommend doing a Daniel fast instead, which is where you only eat vegetables. So for the meal that you would like to fast, just pre prepare a meal of only vegetables, like no starches, no meat, um, instead of what you usually eat. Um, and the hope is that after this season of fasting, for the next few months, we'll build up the habit and can continue fasting regularly throughout the year. Uh, the next spiritual practice that can really help us in crucifying the flesh is the simple act of daily prayer. Jesus lived a life of constant prayer. He longed to be with his Father at every opportunity and found strength in communing with him. E.W. Tozer said, To desire revival and at the same time to neglect personal prayer and devotion is to wish one way and walk another. If we want to change our hearts and our desires, we must pray. It's not just that we should pray, or that's just what good Christians do. It's that we desperately need regular communication with God to be aware of his goodness and his righteousness. We need his healing, his redemption, and his everlasting hope every day. If we want the life of Jesus, we need to pray like Jesus. When we start to constantly pray and seek the Lord's will, to pray for his kingdom in our world and in our hearts, then our desires will change. We will start to desire what God desires. This is something many of us here already prioritize, but if you don't already have a daily of, uh, rhythm of prayer, this is your sign to get started. First Thessalonians says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Both the Jewish tradition and the early Christian church had a practice of praying three times a day. Um, this has been my prayer practice the last few months, and I will recommend it to you as well. If you went to Catalyst, uh, which is our spring retreat, you're already familiar with this liturgy. Uh, in the morning, start your day with the Lord's Prayer. For me, I like to go on walks and pray this through or do it on my drive to work. I'll just say one part at a time and talk to God about that topic. Like when the Lord's Prayer says, give us this day our daily bread, I can talk to God about my current needs and the needs of my community. So instead of being anxious about it all day, I feel comforted that I asked God for what I need and now I know that he will be helping me. And if you don't know how to pray, this is a great prayer to start with because um, it tells you what to pray for. <laughs> it is a simple prayer that originally rhymes so that it could be memorized. It's designed to be simple enough for children to remember and rich enough for grown adults to still be compelled by its words. By praying the Lord's Prayer every day, we are transforming our hearts by praying for His will and not our own. We are praying for forgiveness of our sins and freedom from the temptation to sin again. And I love that it reminds me to be aware of my temptations and my need for God to help me overcome them. I have found a lot of freedom from my thoughts in doing this prayer. 
I feel like the worries that consumed my mind a few months ago do not have that power over me anymore. And I found myself just being more grateful and aware of God working in my life. So next, throughout the day, I encourage you to pray the Shema, which is just Deuteronomy 6.4. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength. Again, this is a really simple prayer that packs a punch. The key part of this prayer is simply the word Shema, which means to listen. It's a quick, simple reminder to listen to the Spirit, listen to the things God is trying to teach you, listen to his word, and then live it out. This prayer is a way to check in with God throughout the day, kind of like a tuning pitch to make, your in- make sure your instrument is in tune. Uh, and then lastly, end the day with the prayer of examine. This prayer is the chance to look back on your day and examine it with God. Like the psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Uh, it really helps just to set a timer for 10 minutes and think about your day. The first part is to look at your consolations. Consolations are things that make us feel connected to God and our authentic selves. Ask yourself, what's working? How are you able to connect with the Spirit throughout the day? In what ways were you blessed, inspired, and joyous? How are you able to love others? Um, Be grateful for the consolations God has given you and notice how God is healing you and leading you. Then look at your desolations. Desolations are things that weather away our authentic selves and our connection with the Spirit. They are things that are discouraging us, harming us, or keeping us from God's presence. Ask yourself, what didn't work today? What made you feel discouraged, worried, angry, or lonely? Uh, What sins got the best of you today? And what are the consequences? The prayer of examine works through using our healthy sense of guilt. Uh, Guilt is to our spirit what pain is to our body, a warning of danger and a protection from additional damage. We must humbly and accurately assess our days. We must realize the ways that we have failed and admit that we need God's healing and redirection. The point of feeling our guilt in the prayer of examine is to repent teaches us to run to the Father who heals all things, not to run away feeling ashamed and irredeemable. Guilt should motivate us to change, whereas shame tells us that we can't. Guilt will push us to seek freedom in the Spirit, but shame can only keep us trapped. Um, And that is why the last practice I'm going to recommend is confession. Confession is the act of being honest about our sins with one another. It takes the things we are ashamed of and gets them out into the light into a place where grace can actually start to heal them. John Mark Comer says, for confession to be effective, it must drag our sins into the light, not keep them in solitary confinement. The Bible is really very clear about the importance of confession as a source of true freedom. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. There's a theme here, right? If we want to be healed, we have to step into the light. When we confess our sins, we will find mercy. Because confession is a reminder of the truth that God has the power to deliver you from your sin that you are already holy in God's sight, you are forgiven. You are not a slave to your mistakes, and you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do.
In the modern era, confession has become a private affair. This is largely a reaction to old Catholic traditions that insisted a priest must intercede on your behalf. Um, and the confession of sins was monetized as well. Like you had to give a certain tithe to the church to be forgiven, and that obviously is not a good model for confession. However, we must be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. Just because we, we reject the lie that anyone can withhold the forgiveness Jesus freely offers, we must continue to confess our sins to one another. Because if we don't confess, then we will not be fully known or fully loved. A pervasive lie of the devil is that if people really knew us, they wouldn't love us. But confession kills this lie. When we say our, our sins out loud and invite our church into it, and they say, hey, we still love you, we still like you, you are good, and you are not defined by your mistakes. That is very powerful. It absolutely robs shame of its power. Um, and crucifixion as an act has always been a public execution. In the same way, crucifying our flesh through public accountability is how we stay healthy and don't find ourselves wrapped up in secret sin. If we create a culture that seems like everyone is perfect, we will be ashamed of our sin and keep it hidden. But if we break down the walls of illusion, if we admit to one another that we really need God, then we will be safe to tell the truth and heal together. We don't have to tell everyone every little thing that we've done, um, but we need to tell somebody. So on a regular basis, find time to talk with a trusted friend or a mentor about the sins you're dealing with. Uh, ask them to let you confess and clarify expectations. For example, maybe you just need to confess and you don't want advice about it yet. Let them know what you need and offer the same in return. Uh, this year at the Catalyst Retreat, we did confession um, and we would take turns confessing our sins, talking about uh, how that sin affects us and the other person would simply respond you are forgiven, you are loved, you are cleansed. Just a few words can be a tremendous encouragement. It reminds us that nothing can keep us from God's love and we can always come home to him. Uh, and I know that crucifying the flesh is intimidating. I know that these practices are hard and it's scary to get started. And if you're worried about it, you're in good company because uh, you're not the only one. The disciple Peter was scared too. When Jesus told his disciples he would die, Peter reacted really strongly. He said, Jesus, don't talk that way. He didn't want to lose his friend or see him suffer. But Jesus reminded him to look at things from heaven's point of view, not the earthly point of view. He's the one Jesus told he must pick up his cross daily. Just like Peter, sometimes we can only see the cross, and we can't imagine an empty tomb. We only focus on the suffering, and we don't know what's coming next. Uh, but through Jesus, death becomes a door to life. When Jesus rose from the grave, he saw Peter again, and even though Peter denied him three times, Jesus gave him the chance to say, I love you, Lord, three times, and heal their relationship. Even though Peter failed, Jesus forgave him and gave him the keys to the kingdom. He made him the rock of the church and used him to spread the good news for the rest of his life. Um, the same man... Oh, sorry, for the rest of his life, and eventually Peter would be crucified as well. He became a martyr. The same man who told Jesus not to die followed Jesus to the grave in the same way because he had faith that he would follow Jesus into eternity. Peter became free from his sins and his fears through Jesus, and that same path is extended to us. We don't have to be afraid because we know where we're going. Uh, let me pray for our church. Um, 
God, I pray for us as we learn to crucify the flesh. Um, Teach us to have faith in you, that it is worth it. Give us hope to see the empty tomb and not just the cross. Um, We look forward to a life spent with you, a life of joy and freedom. Um, We just put our trust in you, God, knowing that you are good and you are so worth it. Um, We love you so much, God. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining the Damascus Road podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus together by being with God, loving everyone, transforming people, developing leaders, growing new ministries, and changing the world. You can find out more about us online at DamascusRoadTucson.com.